Because antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, well, gadolinium, iridium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and, and silver, uh, and samarium, and bismuth, We will try to demystify science for you once more and keep you up to date on what is happening and uh, provide some interesting little tidbits from the world of, of science. I do have a question that is left over from last week, and uh, that was about uh, burning ammonia which uh, can replace fossil fuels as a source of energy. And the question was, if you burn ammonia, what two products do you get? And I didn't get an adequate answer for that. So we will keep that one running. But I will give you another question. In the 1990s, an unknown person left a red lipstick print on a tomb that prompted numerous subsequent visitors to do the same to such an extent that the stone was becoming damaged by frequent cleaning. And in 2011, a glass barrier was erected around the tomb to prevent further kissing. Well, I'm sure you guessed what the question is. Whose tomb are we talking about that had to be protected from being kissed? Now, if you know the answer to one of those questions, or to both, you give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your questions and comments to 514-800. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society, where we have a mandate to describe science to the public, to demystify it, to answer questions, to separate myths from facts, sense from nonsense. That is just what we try to do. But we also try to entertain. And I've come across something that I, I find quite entertaining. So I want to regale you with this. But you have to listen very carefully. Listen carefully. But this is really all, all correct. And it is in the form of a poem. So listen carefully. Here we go. Many, many years ago, when I was 23, I got married to a widow who was pretty as could be. The widow had a grown-up daughter who had hair of red. My father fell in love with her, and soon the two were wed. This made my dad my son-in-law and changed my very life. My daughter was now my mother, for she was my father's wife. To complicate the matters worse, although it brought me joy, I soon became the father of a bouncing baby boy. My little baby then became a brother-in-law to dad, and so became my uncle, though it made me very sad. For if he was my uncle, then that also made him brother to the widow's grown-up daughter, who, of course, was my stepmother. Father's wife then had a son, who kept him on the run, and he became my grandson, for he was my daughter's son. My wife is now my mother's mother, and it makes me blue because although she is my wife, she's my grandma too. If my wife is my grandmother, then I am her grandchild, and every time I think of it, it simply drives me wild. For now I have become the strangest case you ever saw. As the husband of my grandmother, I am my own grandpa. 
<laughs> I know that it is hard to follow. It took me some time to to think it through, but it is indeed all all correct. So very humorous and uh, very interesting on how someone becomes their own grandpa. All right, so much for the uh, fun uh, of this. Well, actually, no, I have another little bit of, of, of fun to talk about. Uh, you know, there's been uh, so much discussion of the uh, Roe versus Wade uh, affair and in the United States because of the Supreme Court decision. And, uh, of course, most people, I would suggest, probably do not know uh, who Roe and Wade were. Uh, Roe was a pseudonym for uh, a lady who wanted to have a, an abortion because they didn't want to publicize her real name. And uh, Wade was the uh, district attorney who was involved in, in, the, uh, in the legal uh, affair. But anyway, uh, I came across a... What I think is a, a cute little joke uh, about this. In a, um, when a professor in a U.S. government class asked a student who uh, was kind of skipping classes, never did the assignments, etc., and uh, so the professor picked on her and uh, asked her if she knew what Roe versus Wade was all about. And she thought for a moment, then answered, hmm, she said, that was the decision George Washington had to make when he decided to cross the Delaware. <laughs> you get it? Was he going to row or was he going to wade across? Anyway, I thought that was kind of uh, of clever, uh, although the whole business of bringing up the row versus wade thing is, uh, is somewhat disturbing, that in this uh, day and age, uh, people would try to force their views on others, especially after it has been so uh, uh, so well you know, uh, inculcated into our uh, society. All right, uh, I did have uh, a couple of answers to the question about the tomb. One was uh, Jim Morrison. No, that's uh, not correct. Although, interestingly enough, Jim Morrison, who, of course, was a musician, he was in, in the uh, Doors the, the group, and uh, he is actually buried in the same cemetery. But I do have a correct answer as well. Indeed, it was uh, Oscar Wilde's uh, tomb that was uh, subject to, to this. And... Uh, the cemetery where uh, Oscar Wilde is, uh, is buried is in Paris. It's called the Père Lachaise Cemetery. And it is actually the most visited cemetery in the world because many other famous people are buried there. Uh, Sarah Bernhardt, the actress, uh, Edith Piaf, singer, Jim Morrison, as I said. Uh, Frédéric Chopin. Uh, the uh, composer, although interestingly enough, he is buried in this cemetery, but his heart is not with him. His heart is actually buried in a memorial in Warsaw, in, uh, in Poland. Marcel Marceau is also buried in a special section of this cemetery that is dedicated to Jewish uh, burials because Marcel Marceau, the uh, great uh, pantomime uh, artist, was uh, indeed uh, Jewish. Uh, 
Mario Callas, uh, the opera singer, uh, the uh, one of the uh, favorites of uh, of the uh, Onassis, the Greek uh, shipping uh, magnate, is buried there. So are Simon Signoret, the actress, and her husband Yves Montand. Uh, Jacques Louis David, uh, who is um, was a, a painter. Uh, one that I've always admired because he uh, painted that classic portrait of uh, Lavoisier hangs in the lobby of uh, our chemistry building here, which we purchased from uh, the uh, Metropolitan Museum, a large uh, copy. And so he's uh, buried there. Uh, interestingly enough, uh, the tomb, Jean, uh, Jacques-Louis David's heart, is the opposite of Frédéric Chopin, because his tomb contains only his heart. Uh, and the reason for that is because uh, David was Napoleon's court painter, and he was exiled as a revolutionary when the uh, royalty returned to the throne of France. And his body was not allowed into the country even uh, after death. So his tomb contains uh, only his heart. Also buried in the same um, cemetery is Samuel Hahnemann, the founder of homeopathy, and his uh, wife, Melanie Hahnemann, uh, who uh, was much, much younger than him and married him after she became uh, enamored of the concept of homeopathy. And eventually she became the uh, first ever female homeopathic uh, physician. So those are all the people buried there, and so is Oscar Wilde. And I'll tell you a little bit more about this kissing business, but uh, first we have to take a break and check traffic. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Okay, I think we have Richard on the line. Uh, Richard. Hello. Hi. Hi. Dr. Joe. Yes, sir. Okay, so I, I listened to your quiz, and the, I believe the tombstone you're referring to is in France by the late, great Jim Morrison. No, uh, we had that answer from someone else. That is, is not correct. Uh, wow. We, well, we I took time to get onto the phone. I, I apologize. Well, okay, no, we did have the correct answer, which is Oscar Wilde. But Jim Morrison is indeed buried in the same cemetery. But uh, nobody goes around kissing his tomb and leaving lip marks as far as <laughs> <laughs> okay, but but the uh, but the um, Oscar Wilde situation is very interesting because sometime in the uh, around 1990, some visitor left a, a lipstick mark on on the tomb, and somehow this uh, business took off. Another started doing the same thing, and soon it was just filled with these lipstick marks. And cleaning uh, took a toll because it also started to degrade the stone. So in 2011, which was actually the 111th anniversary of the death of uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, his uh, grandson had collected enough money to put a glass barrier around the tomb 
that uh, you know prevented people from kissing that. So they now kiss the glass, but that's all right because that can easily be washed off. But I know that's that some 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 people will be surprised by what I just said uh, yep. about uh, Oscar Wilde having a grandson. Because, of course, he was uh, quite famously uh, <clears throat> uh, homosexual. Yeah. Uh, but uh, he did try to to uh, disguise that, and he married, and he actually had two two children. But eventually, of course, uh, as most people know, he was also tried for his homosexuality, which was illegal at that time in Britain, and he was sentenced to two years in uh, in prison. When he got out, he immediately went to France, which is where he died just uh, three years later from uh, meningitis. But uh, th that's the background story to the kissing of his uh, tomb. Great. Well, thank okay, you very well, much. Well, thanks for the for the Jim Morrison connection because I mean that's interesting too, being in the same cemetery. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. Okay. <laughs> All thank right. You. So I. I still have uh, one question out there, and about what are the products of the reaction when you burn ammonia. But since the Oscar Wilde question was uh, answered, uh, I'll, uh, I'll give you another one. In Victorian times, talking about Oscar Wilde, uh, prisoners did not sit in jails. They were put to work. And many had to spend their days picking oakum. Picking oakum, O-A-K-U-M. What were these prisoners doing when they were picking oakum? If you know the answer to that, you give us a call at 514-790-0800, or you can text us to 514-800. And in fact, when Oscar Wilde was put in jail, uh, that's what he had to do, was to pick oakum. Incidentally, the, the reason I asked the question about uh, Oscar Wilde uh, is because I've, I've had an interest uh, in in him because uh, I really liked uh, his play, uh, The Importance of Being Earnest, of course, which is famous. And I liked his uh, other classic, The Portrait uh, of Dorian Gray, in which, of course, the painting grows old, but he doesn't after essentially having made a, a pact with the devil. And uh, yesterday there was a story in the Montreal Gazette uh, because uh, Tommy Schnurmacher, with whom I used to share the airwaves here on CJD for many years, is uh, also a fan of Oscar Wilde. And he was talking about uh, searching out uh, Oscar Wilde's tomb on a visit to, to France. And uh, that's what reminded me of this uh, rather interesting story. And that's why I asked the, uh, the question. <clears throat> okay, so we got those two questions uh, uh, hanging out there. But uh, <clears throat> something else that... Um, I do want to uh, discuss, and uh, <clears throat> that relates to a discussion that we had this morning on the trivia show about uh, uh, companies promoting a product uh, on the basis that it does not contain the carbon-14 uh, isotope. So let me tell you a little bit about uh, that story. Uh, you know, when, when it comes to marketing, you put the prefix bio on, on there, and it will sell better. You know, whether it's uh, biodegradable or uh, a term that is being very commonly used these days is bio-based. <clears throat> well, bio comes from the Greek word for life. So that a bio-based product means the material from which it is made comes from a renewable living source rather than from non-renewable petroleum. 
And the assumption is that bio-based substances have a lower environmental impact in terms of greenhouse gas emissions and that they have more sustainable supply chains. <clears throat> well, uh, a closer examination suggests that, that uh, th these benefits are, are, are sort of nuanced. And uh, a classic example here are substances we call surfactants. And these are interesting molecules because they have, uh, they're long molecules. One end happens to love water. The other end happens to love oily materials. So they are great for removing greasy stains from surfaces. And you find them in laundry products. These are the active ingredients in, in uh, detergents. You also find them in cosmetics where they allow oily and aqueous uh, phases to blend together smoothly. Now, most surfactants are produced synthetically and source at least some of their components from petroleum. For example, sodium lauryl ether sulfate, abbreviated as SLES, is uh, one of the most widely used surfactants. And uh, it's made from lauryl alcohol and from ethylene oxide. Now, the lauryl alcohol is produced from palm kernel oil or coconut oil. And the ethylene oxide can either be made from petroleum or from um, uh, plant products. <clears throat> And this is where the push comes. The suppliers to large companies, such as Procter & Gamble, you know, who, who buy surfactants and then repackage them to sell to us. Now, they are uh, marketing their SLES to these uh, companies, claiming that uh, <clears throat> their product contains no carbon-14. Why is this? Why should this be a marketing uh, feature? Okay, well, let me try to explain this rather interesting concept uh, to you. When cosmic rays, which are high-energy particles that originate in outer space, bombard the Earth's atmosphere, they produce neutrons. And these can knock a proton out of the nucleus of the nitrogen atom, which, of course, is found in air, and convert it to the carbon-14 isotope. And the result is that about one in every trillion carbon dioxide molecules in the air has a carbon-14 atom in it instead of a carbon-12. And since carbon dioxide from the air is the source of all carbon atoms in plants, of course, through photosynthesis, living plants will always contain some carbon-14 because they get their carbon dioxide from the air. But carbon-14 is radioactive and has a half-life of about 5,700 years, which means that petroleum, which of course was formed from living matter more than 65 million years ago, can no longer contain any carbon-14, because every 5,700 years, it decays to half the amount. So after 65 million years, you don't have any. So a consequence of this is that compounds derived from petroleum will not contain any carbon-14 isotope, while those originating in living matter will have some. And this is what the whole, whole bio-based argument is on. People are looking for substances that are more sustainable, that is made from living matter. And uh, this is why uh, the suppliers of, um, of this particular surfactant are trying to attract their customers by saying that uh, they can prove that their product comes from a plant source. Well, whether or not that really is more environmentally friendly or not, that's a different question, but at least now you understand the science behind it. All right, you're listening to the Dr. Joe Show. 
had to take a break and check traffic. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? When the problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Okay, I think we have Liz on the line. Hey, yes. Liz. Yes, hello, Dr. Joe Schwartz. Uh, I'm a very faithful listener to your wonderful, very informative program. I'd like to take Thank a you. shot at your uh, question concerning ammonia. Well, yes. ammonia, if it uh, burns, it has to take in oxygen. So what it can yes. produce is either water, water vapor, and maybe nitrogen dioxide, but I'm not sure of the nitrogen uh, compound that uh, may be formed. Well, you got it half right. One of the products is water, but the other is not nitrogen Oh, oxide. okay. I wasn't sure of the nitrogen, what it would do. <laughs> All right. Someone okay. else did text in the correct answer, though. Okay. And the correct answer is nitrogen, gaseous nitrogen. Oh, plus just plain nitrogen. Water. Yeah. Yeah, that's what is produced. Okay. And uh, ammonia, of course, is one of the most important chemicals produced in the world today because of its use as a fertilizer. It is either directly pumped into the ground or converted into urea or into ammonium nitrate, which are used as fertilizer. And the fact is... Without the production of ammonia, it would be impossible to feed the world today. Yeah, so it is very important. Yeah. Now, the thing is also that, uh, as we mentioned, ammonia burns. And uh, it is a very, very good replacement for fossil fuels. Because ammonia, of course, can be made quite readily by the so-called Haber-Bosch uh, process. But to make ammonia, you need nitrogen, which is not a problem because that you get from the air. But you also need hydrogen to make ammonia. And this is where the problem comes in. Because in order to uh, get the hydrogen, uh, well, either you split water using electricity, which is uh, certainly uh, possible, but it requires then generation of electricity, uh, or uh, it can be made by combining natural gas with steam. So both of those are energy-intensive processes. And that's, that's why, uh, you know, there's a, a problem in producing enough ammonia to be used as, as fuel. Okay. But if the problem of splitting hydrogen can be solved by using renewable energy, uh, using uh, solar power, wind power, tidal power, nuclear energy, all of these, then we'll be able to produce enough ammonia, both for fertilizer and to uh, supply energy. And um, if, uh, if the ammonia is produced in such a way that the required hydrogen comes from a renewable source, like water power or wind power, then that would be called green ammonia. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you will hear the word blue ammonia, and that refers to, to um, uh, carbon dioxide uh, that uh, during the production of it needs to be captured because whenever you're going to produce for, uh, hydrogen from uh, uh, steam and methane, one of the byproducts is carbon dioxide because you need heat and so you're going to be burning something yeah, right. and that generates carbon dioxide. So that would have to be captured and uh, that kind of ammonia is called blue ammonia because there are some energy requirements. Very interesting. Anyway, Okay. All right, so there's the story of ammonia. Okay, okay thanks Thank for you. calling. Bye-bye. All right, we also had a, a question texted in uh, about whether or not fossil fuels are still considered to originate from dinosaurs. <clears throat> well, yes and no. 
uh, dinosaurs certainly lived more than 65 million years ago, so that um, uh, as they decompose in the ground and, uh, you know, uh, eventually they turn into uh, petroleum. That's, that's true. But dinosaurs are not the only living species that turned into petroleum. All plant material uh, also does the same thing. So, yes, so fossil fuels could be the remnants of dinosaurs, plus, of course, other plant matter. <clears throat> we also have a question about stevia. Uh, someone is, is concerned about um, uh, using stevia as an artificial uh, uh, sweetener. Stevia comes from a plant source. And that, of course, is very often hyped by its producers with the suggestion that if something comes from a plant source, it's natural and therefore better than something that is synthetic like um, uh, aspartame or, or sucralose. That equation does not hold, as I've said many, many times. The benefit or the potential toxicity of a substance is not determined by its mode of production. It doesn't matter if it was made by mother nature in a plant or by a chemist in a lab. What matters is what it is, how we have studied it and what we know about it. We know quite a bit about stevia. Uh, it is a, a, a fine artificial sweetener uh, in the sense that uh, it uh, has passed all of the tests that are required to be put on the market as, uh, as a food additive. And uh, it has no uh, inherent uh, toxicity. Uh, but of course, uh, the same can be said for sucralose or aspartame or, or uh, saccharin, any of the other sweeteners on the market. Because in order to get on the market, they all have to provide uh, evidence for uh, their safety be benefit uh, profile. So I, I don't have anything against uh, um, uh, the stevia. Uh, I think it's fine. I've, I've used it. I think it, it tastes uh, okay. The only problem, as I've mentioned often with all of these artificial sweeteners, is that, uh, well, of course, they don't uh, uh, provide any calories, but they do provide a sweet taste. And that will very often uh, sort of trigger a likeness for sweets. And that's something that we, we don't need. You want to cut down on your taste for, um, for sweets. But in terms of, of, of safety, I, I don't have any, um, any concern about uh, stevia, but not because it is natural. That has uh, nothing to, to do with it. Okay, since we had our ammonia question uh, answered, uh, let me give you another one. What is a turducken? What is a turducken? T-U-R-D-U-C-K-E-N. If you know the answer, if you've ever dealt with a turducken and you know what that is, give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your messages and your comments to 514-800. Uh, uh, All right. Uh, there's uh, a couple of other things that uh, I want to talk about uh, uh, today. Uh, just for sake of interest, because something triggered my memory, about the kiwi bird. And uh, I remember seeing these things when I visited uh, uh, New Zealand and uh, someone was uh, just recently asking me whether the, the kiwi fruit that we eat had anything to do with the kiwi bird. Uh, 
not that I know, other than kiwi means coming from New Zealand, and the kiwi fruit comes from there, and the kiwi is the national bird of New Zealand. It's a very interesting bird. It it can't fly. It lives in a hole in the ground. It's almost brown. It's you can hardly see, and it lays only one egg every year. But it's been around for seventy million years, and they can grow to the size of a chicken. Uh, they can weigh anywhere, you know, up to nine pounds. They're very interesting looking. They have no tail. Uh, they have uh, two tiny wings, which for all purposes are, are useless. Uh, they look awkward in appearance, but a kiwi can actually outrun a human. And uh, they have managed to survive because of their alertness and their sharp three-toed feet, which enable them to kick and slash an enemy. And the kiwis, they have this long, slender bill, and uh, they have nostrils at the lower end. And they have an excellent sense of smell and this flexible bill. And the kiwi feeds on worms, insects, grubs, uh, berries, and seeds. And uh, I remember seeing them in New Zealand. They have special places where you can view the kiwi, and uh, they're generally in, in uh, the darkness because they don't like uh, uh, light. All right, so that's the kiwi bird. And uh, we got to take another break. We'll check traffic and be right back. New Tim's Loaded Wraps are packed with delicious ingredients like tasty grains, slow-cooked or crispy seasoned chicken, and our delicious habanero or cilantro lime sauce. Deliciously satisfying. New Tim's Loaded Wraps. Try one today at participating restaurants in Canada. We are born to do science. A baby can do it and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figure it out what's true. So I did have a correct answer to my question about a turducken. Uh, Jessica was the first one to come up with that. Indeed, it is a dish, and it's made by taking a deboned chicken, stuffing it inside a deboned duck, and stuffing that combo into a deboned turkey. And then, of course, roasting it all in the oven with, I assume, all kinds of spices uh, added. Uh, it was uh, popularized by John Madden, the uh, football uh, announcer. He was always talk about eating a turducken. I don't know if I would be brave enough to try that. I've seen pictures of it. It kind of looks kind of interesting when you uh, cut through it. Uh, so that is a turducken. It also did have a, a correct answer to the other question that I had asked, and that was um, about what picking oakum, O-A-K-U-M, was all about. And uh, this goes back to Victorian times when prisoners uh, uh, were put to work in jail cells, and they had to spend their days picking oakum, what were they doing? They were unraveling old hemp ropes uh, that were used in, in ships and uh, the loose fibers that they were able to, to get when they unraveled these ropes, they were called oakum from the old English word meaning to uncomb. Well, this uh, oakum was then mixed with tar or with fat and used as a caulking to fill 
in the gaps between the wooden planks of ships to make them watertight. And uh, prisoners who were sentenced to hard labor, hard labor was to cut the rope into small bits and then hit it with a heavy uh, mallet to break apart the tar in which the original rope had been soaked. And once this was done, it was then passed to prisoners who were serving lesser sentences and women and children often. And they had to uncoil or unpick this, uh, this rope and shred it into fibers. And those fibers were the oakum. And uh, this practice eventually uh, became obsolete when uh, iron ships were introduced and uh, they needed no caulking. Uh, the Victorian era was uh, certainly an <clears throat> interesting uh, one. Uh, let me go back for a moment to uh, a time before the Victorian era, although not much before. Um, and this takes us back to the days of John Dalton. Well, anyway, uh, sometime in, in 1995, researchers from Cambridge asked the Manchester Literary and Philosophical Society for a false, small sample to be taken from an eyeball that had been sitting in a jar on the shelf since uh, 1844. Those eyes in the jar had once made some of the most important scientific observations in history. They belonged to John Dalton, the English schoolteacher who in the late years of the 18th century formulated the atomic theory. Dalton had inferred from the way that elements combined with each other that these fundamental building blocks of matter were made of atoms and that atoms of any element were identical to each other but different in mass from atoms of other elements. He also meticulously recorded his observations of weather patterns, northern lights, behavior of gases. And he also observed that he had made these observations through eyes that were somehow different from those of others. John Dalton discovered he was colorblind. He already had some inclination about this visual problem from the criticism he occasionally encountered from his fellow Quakers about the loud color of his attire which to him seemed perfectly sedate. He would wear red socks, not knowing that uh, they were red, and red socks were not in style in those days. <clears throat> then one night in 1792, he noted that the geranium plant, which to him had appeared what he called blue by daylight, appeared to change its color completely by candlelight. Well, candlelight is composed of a different range of wavelengths or colors than sunlight. Newton had, of course, shown this long before by passing light through a prism. Dalton questioned his friends about this, but they were puzzled because they saw no change in the color of the flower. He then knew that something interesting was going on. He surmised that somehow his eyes were filtering out some colors and thought that perhaps the vitreous humor, that is the thick liquid inside the eyeball, was a different color than that of others. He, of course, wasn't keen enough to have his eye removed while he was alive, but he did leave instructions that his eyes should be removed after his death and that they should be studied. And this was done. The liquid was squeezed out and found to be perfectly normal. Joseph Ransom, Dalton's assistant, then made a hole in the back of the eye and looked through it. Again, he did not notice any filtering effect and concluded that color blindness did not stem from a physical change in the eyeball. Well, he was wrong about that, but certainly would not have had the means at the time to determine the cause of color blindness. 
Today, we can relate color blindness to malfunctioning cells in the retina, the light-sensitive layer of tissue which lines the back and the sides of the eyeball. Here, color is perceived by cells called cones, of which we have three types. One is sensitive to blue, another to green, and a third to yellow and, and reds. Color blindness is a malfunction in one or more of these cell types. Deuteropes, for example, cannot see the green part of the spectrum. Protonopes are insensitive to red, and tritonopes are blind to blue. Color vision and problems associated with it are encoded in our genes. That's why researchers asked to investigate Dalton's eyeballs. By 1995, the polymerase chain reaction, that is PCR, had been developed to the extent that a tiny sample of DNA could be reproduced and samples large enough for such a study uh, could be taken, and the researchers discovered that John Dalton was indeed a deuterope and saw the world differently from others. Dalton himself had presaged such genetic analysis with his observation that while his friends saw no difference in the color of the germanium flower by candlelight, his brother did. Curiously, it was not the English, but the French, who commemorated Dalton's observations about color blindness in a significant way. The French term for color blindness is le daltonisme. So there, you've learned something about the history of color blindness and uh, John Dalton and uh, his investigative matters. But of course, uh, we best remember John Dalton because of his contribution to, to the atomic theory. Now, truth be told, <clears throat> he was not the first one to formulate the idea that matter was made up of, of small particles. The Greeks, uh, Democritus, uh, already had suggested that if, if you divided matter uh, and kept dividing it, you would eventually come to a point where you have a particle that could not be divided further. And in fact, they coined the, the word atom for meaning indivisible. But the Greeks didn't go any further. And John Dalton did. He said that different elements were made of atoms and that the atoms of one element differed from the atoms of the other. Of course, he didn't exactly know how. Now we know that elements are, are classified depending on the number of protons they have in their nucleus. That's what determines what an element is. So carbon, for example, has six protons in its nucleus, and that is what defines it as carbon. Well, we have once again run out of time, but hopefully we have informed you and entertained you, and we'll be back to do the same next week at the same time. And until we meet again, I'm Joe Schwartz hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right.